0: This morning we will be in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. This passage is known as the Shema. It's a passage of scripture that Jewish people have recited for millennia. But before we get to our passage this morning, kids, I know 1970 seemed like a long, long time ago, as my kids say, the 19s, and this is a little even before my time, but not much, in May of 1970, there's a little, here's a little music lesson for all of you kids out there a group by the name of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young released the single, Teach Your Children. The song begins, You who are on the road must have a code that you can live by, and so become yourself because the past is just a goodbye. Teach your children well. Graham Nash wrote that song and in an interview that he did on NPR in 2009 said that the immediate inspiration for the song came from a famous photograph by Diane Airbus. The photograph is titled A Child with Toy Hand Grenade in Central Park. The image depicts a little boy with an almost maniacal look on his face. His arms are at his side, his left, fist, his left hand is in a fist, and his right hand is holding a toy hand grenade. The image prompted Nash to reflect on the soci- societal implications of messages given to children about war and other societal issues. This morning, we come to one of the classic passages of the Bible about teaching our children well teaching them to love the Lord and to live shalom. With that in mind, let's read Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. This is Moses speaking to the people. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage of scripture, Lord, that has been so dear to the people of Jewish faith for the millennia that they recite this day after day, reminding them of... The call that you've placed upon them to be their God and to teach their children. And Lord God, as heirs of the promises of Abraham, we too, as Christians, are reminded that this is for us as well to know that you are our God, that we are to love you with all of our heart, our soul, and our might, and that we are to teach our children to teach one another to live shalom. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us. Help us by giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in our new series that we've just started a couple weeks ago called Shalom in the Home and Everywhere Else. And last week, Pastor Alex was in Genesis chapter 3 where we saw that shalom was broken. The first week we looked at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 where we see that God created everything in shalom, everything to be in peace and harmony, to living well together. God with with people, people with creation, people with one another. And in Genesis 3 we see that that is broken, that there is now a break in the relationship between God and humanity. There is a break in relationship between the creation and humanity. There is a a break in in relationship between one another. The shalom of our relationship with God, with creation, and with one another was broken. And yet God promises that he will bring one who will restore shalom. Right? As Adam and Eve have digressed God, who have turned their back on him, who have decided that they would seek their own good the way that they decided to, God gives a promise that he will send one who will bring and restore shalom. And if, as we look at our passage today, we fast forward in the unfolding of redemptive history. God has revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the faith. God has raised up Moses to bring his people out of Egypt by the power of God. God has confirmed with them the covenant that he made with their forefathers, has given them the words of life, and he has commanded them to live these words of life that they might live in shalom and bring shalom to all all areas of their life. But what we see in our passage today is if we read this and we are honest with ourselves, we don't live shalom as we're commanded. As God commanded his people to live shalom, we know in their story that they did not live this out the way that God commanded them and the way they promised to, and neither do we. But we see in our passage today that we are called by God to live shalom. We are to be a people of shalom. Again, (laughs) this word does not show up in this passage, but what we see is this is exactly what God is getting at what He is calling us to what he is what He has given us and is giving us. We are called by God to live Shalom and we'll see the covenant of Shalom and then we'll see living Shalom the covenant of Shalom we see right here in, in verse 1 of chapter 6, that, now this is the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Moses, again, so we can almost look at this as a Moses' final sermon, so to speak, before going into the promised land. This These commands, the decrees, the statutes, the rules, as an expression of the covenant document as a whole, the the whole thing that God has given to his people, the Ten Commandments, and then everything that flows out of those. This is the covenant document. It's also all that Moses has written, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the whole Torah, the whole book of what we call the law. And yet in the book of the law is not just laws, but it's also the mighty works of God, the acts of creation, the acts of calling Abraham to himself, the acts of God promising these things, the act of God saving his people from Egypt and slavery, the act of God carrying his people through the, through the wilderness. This is all is encompassed by what God says here. But Moses is reiterating to the people this, this book, this whole document. This is covenantal Language, the terms and conditions of the covenant that the Lord God made with Abraham. God even, Moses even references that, that the Lord, and verse 3, the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, referring to this covenant that God made with Abraham, and then subsequently Isaac and Jacob and all those that would come after. A covenant speaks of love and intimacy, but you also see the language of law in love, right? And Language of law in covenant. right? God clearly shows his love for his people. If you go back into chapter five where the 10 commandments are re-given, the Lord, before he, the 10 commandments are, are spoken, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, I am the Lord, right? Remember the term God's special name, Yahweh, his covenant name, his name of love and mercy and compassion and kindness. The covenant speaks of love and intimacy, but also speaks of law. This covenant is sealed with an oath to confirm. A covenant is a relationship which is more loving and intimate than simply a legal relationship, yet it's more binding. It's enduring and accountable than simply a personal relationship. It's a, as Tim Keller says, it's a stunning blend of law and love. It's a personal relationship made more loving and intimate because it's legal through voluntary Mutual binding promises and vows to be loving and faithful no matter what the circumstances. And the covenant relationship only works if both parties say, I want to be what I should be, even if you aren't what you should be. That's the hope of human marriage, of a covenant. I will be what I should be, even if you aren't what you should be. And both parties are to say, The same. I will be committed to your needs before my needs. I will be committed to the relationship, even if it's not meeting my needs at the moment. I give you my independence, I give you part of my freedom as a gift of love. And if both say that, it's a covenant relationship. We have a hard time mixing law and love together. We might want a personal relationship with God, one that meets my needs, that looks more like a consumer relationship. But what's interesting is that God only relates in covenant. There is no person in Scripture that we see throughout the Bible that God does not relate to in covenant. God only relates to us in covenant. in the uniqueness, a mixture of law and love that creates the most profound, fulfilling, life-changing relationships. A covenant is more than a contract, but it's not less. If you meet the terms of the contract, there are rewards or blessings. If you fail to meet them or violate the terms and conditions, there are penalties or curses. We see that in verse 3. Hear, therefore, Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. If you violate the covenant, there are penalties. That's what makes the contract valuable, right? It keeps people honest it, it keeps and it helps you give reasons that you would keep the contract <laughs> verse 14 or and 15, 15 that we didn't read but actually gives us a really intense view of what the ultimate curses are for those who don't keep it moses reminds them for the lord your god is in your midst a jealous god lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Wait, isn't God a forgiving God? But if God is a covenant God, what good is a covenant if you just ignore the penalties? Here's the mystery of the Bible. God says he can't bless a disobedient people. You must obey. I am a just judge. I can't wink at guilt. I can't overlook disobedience, God says. But God also says, sometimes in the very next verse, sometimes over and over again on the very same page of Scripture, God also says, I will never leave you. I will never give up on you. I will always accept you. I will never forsake you. God also says, I can only bless you if you do this. But then he also says, I will bless you no matter what. What is God saying? Is he schizophrenic? These seem like irreconcilable tensions in the Bible. How can they both be true at the same time? And throughout scripture, the question that keeps coming up is, is God going to give in to his people? (laughs) These people who don't keep the covenant. These people who don't keep the statutes and rules. Those who don't love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and strength. Will God give in to them? and accept whatever they do? Well, if he does that, what about his holiness? Or will God give up on his people? But if he gives up on his people, if he destroys them from the face of the earth, what about his faithfulness? His loving kindness? Put another way, Theological terminology. Are the blessings of God conditional or unconditional? We tend to either fall on one side or the other. We either believe it's conditional. Yes, God is loving and he loves us, but we must be good or God won't accept us. Or we believe it's unconditional. Yes, God wants us to obey, He wants us to follow the Ten Commandments and you know be good people. But in the end, God loves everybody and accepts any everybody. We either believe law is primary or love, and love is secondary, or love is primary, and law is secondary. But is that what the Bible teaches? somehow the Bible holds both of those as equally true. How do we resolve this? We resolve it in the covenant. The covenant with Abraham. If you remember in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and said, I'm making a covenant with you. And Abraham slices these animals in half and places them alongside each other like a row. And he walks in these, to- in the- Abraham knew what was happening here. This was, a treaty that was taking place, a covenant treaty that was familiar to Abraham in his day. And members of the, co- of the treaty would walk through this disgusting display <laughs> of animals literally torn apart and would, were saying by walking through it, if I break this covenant, let me be like these animals. Abraham knew what that meant. But here's what happens Abraham doesn't walk through those animals that are torn apart. God passes through as a burning, flaming, smoking pot. Abraham is not called to walk through and God says that he will be torn to pieces if he breaks the covenant. But Abraham the servant didn't walk through too. And Abraham knew what that meant, but he didn't know how. God was making the promise for both of them. He was taking the curse of the covenant for both of them. Not only will I be torn to pieces if I don't keep the covenant, God says. I'll be torn to pieces if you don't keep the covenant. For the Lord your God is in your midst as a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. The anger of the Lord our God was kindled against himself. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, He was destroyed. This is the answer to the question of how can these two things both be true at the same time? How can the covenant be one of love and one of law? How can the covenant be both conditional and unconditional at the same time? It's because... Of Jesus. This is the answer. Paul says in Romans 4: God can be both just and justifier of those who believe. The blessings of God are both conditional and unconditional. And Jesus fulfilled the conditions of the law in his life and took the curses of the law in his death. So that God can love us unconditionally. And we receive the blessings. And understanding this reality leads us into what Keller calls paradoxical obedience. When we understand that Jesus fulfilled the conditions of the covenant at an infinite cost so that we can be loved unconditionally. If that's true, then I need to take the law seriously. Because Jesus died to fulfill this. But when I fail, and I do fail... I know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what God is getting at here in the first part of our passage. That this covenant is a covenant that he will keep, that he has kept. And this is a covenant that he calls us to keep, and yet we can't keep it. But the man, God, Christ Jesus, kept it for us. In his humanity, he kept it for all humanity. And understanding this covenant, this covenant of shalom is how we live shalom, how verses 4 through 9 can be lived out. Apart from this, we can't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and might. It's impossible. But because of what Christ has done, we pursue the God who loves us unconditionally with unconditional love. That's what loving with all your heart, soul, and might is getting at, an unconditional love. And so we teach our children... We teach one another in the church of God's ways, which lead to shalom. We teach of his covenant salvation. I am the Lord your God, right? It is a personal, it is a communal, our God. I am your God. I'm not some God out there. I am your God. We are to teach of his covenant salvation. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord, your God, who came in the person of Jesus Christ to live and to die and to rise again, to rescue you from the slavery of sin and the fear of death. I am the Lord, your God. We teach our children. We teach one another Of his covenant salvation. And this is how the words can be written on our hearts, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. How else can they be on our heart? They are only on our hearts because of the work of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of His Spirit. Apart from a covenant relationship where we have Christ as the one who fulfills the covenant, the Word of God may be something we know, but it's not something we love. It's not transforming us. The heart was the inner part of the person in the Hebrew mind that refers to our will, our mind, our consciousness, our emotions, our understanding. And so God is saying that his word, these words that he has spoken will transform us, will be in our heart. So that as it's on our heart, it will transform our will, our mind, our consciousness, our emotions, our understanding. We are to teach what it means as God's people, the commandments that God has given, what it means to have no other gods, what it means to not fashion idols, to not take God's name in vain, to keep and enjoy Sabbath rest and worship. These are the things that we are to teach and to model and to lead our children and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And what does this mean? that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. And how are these words on our hearts? But loving God is also lived out by loving our neighbor as ourselves, As Jesus said, is the second great commandment. And so we are to teach how to honor our father and mother and those in authority. We are to teach that we're not to murder or allow murder by inaction of, of God's people. To not commit adultery or other sexual sin. To not see, steal or operate businesses in ways that exploit the consumer or worker. To not bear false witness or to lie for your own game. To not covet what is not yours or live beyond your means. And all the implications of those commands of what it means to live. Shalom. But this isn't merely an intellectual exercise. It's not just sitting someone down in a chair and speaking these words over and over and over again to them. That is part of it, right? (laughs) You shall teach them diligently to your children. There is a time and a place for us to sit and to listen and to receive God's word, as in this opportunity on on a Sunday morning in, in worship or in Sunday school or in other aspects of God teaching us through Bible study and things like that. We are to sit and to be taught and to learn. But it's more than that. It's not merely an intellectual exercise. It's not merely a downloading of information. It's a personal relationship. I mean, I'm sorry. The people of God aren't simply to teach one another in lecture. It's to be taught through conversation, through experience in the everyday parts of life. God is not merely talking about personal piety either. A merely personal relationship with him. Yes, it is that, but it is so much more. He's also speaking of learning what this personal relationship means and how it affects every aspect of our life, how it flows out and brings the shalom of God. It is... Also speaking of learning shalom, learning how to live shalom, to learn how God's law about proper business practices, not cheating the customer or not taking advantage of employees actually works out in everyday life. How honoring authority, even when we might disagree with what a, the authority over us, how that honors God. It's learning to seek shalom in all of our personal relationships and how we serve and seek to change institutions and organizations And we can only do that as we get up and as we go along the road, as we actually experience life together. It's learning how to seek shalom by seeing the image of God in all people. Images are powerful things. They elicit songwriters to write songs and remind us that we must teach our children Teach one another the ways in which God calls us to live. We need to use all these opportunities to teach one another how to live shalom. When you talk to them, when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, they should be so much a part of you that you shall bind them as sign on your hand, and you shall have them as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. They should be a part of our life. In verse 20, Moses says, When your son asks you in a time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land he swore to our fathers. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. It is both in going along in the everyday aspects of life and showing and teaching and helping one another learn what it means to live shalom. It's responding to the questions of our children or to those who are new in the faith or growing in the faith. What does it mean about these things? How am I supposed to live? How does this work? We need to use all these opportunities to teach one another how to live shalom. Images are powerful things, as I said. And they elicit songwriters to write songs and remind us to we must teach our children. Teach one another the ways in which God calls us to live, and one image that I cannot get out of my mind is the image of George Floyd on the pavement with a man's knee on his neck. A man dying like an animal while someone who's charged to protect life is taking it. How does an image like this help us to learn to live shalom? It helps us by having difficult and hard conversations with our kids, with one another about the history of our country and how that history still influences our society and us today. Our son Sam, for his end-of-the-year project for fourth grade, did a, a, a paper, a study on Jackie Robinson. It's an important study for him to have. And it's hard to have a fourth, a fourth grader to talk about with them some of the issues and things that were happening in that day and age. And how people could treat one another in that way. How institutions could be set up that excluded people merely for the color of their skin. We thought it'd be good to watch the movie 42 to help our kids understand exactly what's going on. It's a great movie if you haven't watched it, but it is difficult to watch at times. Especially with your kids. To hear the N-word over and over and over again demeaning someone in that way. And yet it's important for us to have those conversations, for us to not ignore it, not only for our own sakes, for our kids' sakes, but for our brothers and sisters in Christ's sake who have understood and lived that reality in their lives because of the color of their skin. important for us to have these conversations of what does it mean for us to bring shalom as a people of God, for us to bring shalom as a society. I listened to the podcast Revisionist History, and I've gotten, I was going back and listening to an to episode yesterday as I was doing yard work on political satire. And one of the political satire pieces that they Focused on was this uh, group in Israel uses political satire to speak to the issues of the israeli Palestinian conflict and one of the skits that they played was a, of a school that would help Israeli children understand what it meant to be Israeli and what it meant to live in israel and in the piece they are actually talking about. Shalom. And I, I, my ears perked up, and so I started listening. And the, and the satire was that the teacher was helping them to understand what it meant for them to have shalom. And what it meant for them to have shalom is that nobody else would experience shalom. That what, was, what mattered was their personal shalom, and that nobody else mattered. We have to ask ourselves, do we, knowingly or unknowingly, fall into that similar type of mentality? Do we desire shalom at the expense of others? Shalom. It's important for us to have these conversations. It's important for us to talk about it, even as hard as it is, and I haven't even done a good job. As I said, we, we've talked about it with, my, with our kids through Jackie Robinson, but I haven't talked to my kids about George Floyd or about Arbery because I don't want my kids to know that that's part of our world, but it is. In order for them to understand how they, have to, how they can live in shalom, they have to know what is wrong with the world how shalom is broken they have to understand the history and the influence that still influences our society and us today they have to understand why it is that black men in our society are viewed as dangerous often they need to understand how our hispanic and black friends are 50 percent more likely to experience excessive force by law enforcement How we as God's people are to live out the sixth commandment to seek fair and just ways that all people are treated. These are not easy conversations to have, as I said, but we must have them. We must for the life of the world. We actually have the words of life. These are the words that I have given you, God says. So we must speak them, even if they aren't popular. We are covenant people saved by the God of the covenant. We have received all the blessings unconditionally in Jesus Christ. And so we are called to live shalom because we have received shalom. We are to live shalom, to live out the law of love, to live out the law out of love, to show love when the law says condemnation. This is the way of our God, and we are his people. May we learn to live shalom and by God's grace live it for the life of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of covenant and that, Lord, you fulfilled both the blessings and the curses of that covenant for us that we might receive the blessings. That you fulfilled the conditional blessings. So we might receive unconditional. Lord, and that because we are a covenant people, because you have promised you would never leave us or forsake us, because you have blessed us with all the blessings of your covenant promises, Lord, we can live as covenant people. Those who seek shalom, those who teach shalom, those who have, are learning shalom to walk. In the shalom of our God. Or may we be those who seek the shalom of the city, or where you have placed us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.